You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are on Psalm number 70. So let's all turn to Psalm 70 and we'll just jump straight in. This is, uh, it says there, for the choir director, a psalm of David for a memorial. Now, we're not quite sure what a memorial means. Some people uh, speculate that maybe this was a psalm that was used in association with some of the sacrifices. Maybe it was given at special occasions. We're not entirely sure. It is actually, this is a very short psalm, and it is actually pretty much a repeat of uh, Psalm 40, verses 13 to 17. So we'll take a slightly different slant on it today, maybe. It says, O God, hasten to deliver me. O Lord, hasten to my help. Let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek my life. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be turned back of their shame, back because of their shame, who say, aha, aha. This is basically what we're seeing here is a very short and fervent, desperate prayer. And quite often this is the sort of prayer that can be very effective. It always makes me think of Peter's prayer, Lord save me, as he sunk off the, just off the edge of the boat. Simple, short, to the point, effective and answered. The, the great expositor E.M. Bounds, he said that prayer, the prayers of God's saints are the capital stock in heaven by which Christ carries on his great work upon the earth. And he, he elsewhere, he sort of speculates that there's probably not one thing that the Lord does through his church that has not been prayed for at some point by saints. Often the people who pray the most are the ones that you don't even know their name. They're the ones who are just praying in the background and probably in heaven we'll see that they're the ones I firmly believe that probably get more of the rewards in that respect for their faithfulness. Also, this short psalm here illustrates the expectation, the faith of the author here, David. As soon as he, really no sooner than the prayer had left his lips and ascended up to the courts of heaven, he did expect to see the Lord's deliverance in his life. He wanted his enemies to feel a sense of shame for what they do. And this is one of the sins you can often judge where a person's heart is. You can judge where a, a nation is sometimes by these sorts of things. When one sins with a high hand, so I'm talking about willful sinning, there's no sense of shame for it, if you often get that. There's no guilt, there's no remorse, and that is often a sign that a, a culture or a person has seared their heart, seared their conscience, and moved beyond that. So I think it's actually quite, it's almost like an act of mercy that he's asking that they would be put to shame, because that is one of the first steps of driving someone back to God who's in this position. It's actually a, a, an interesting way to look at it. And then let's look at verse 4. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let the Lord, let God be magnified. Wonderful verse. But I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So we see here the praying saint is the one who is seeking God in their lives. We all need that fire to be stirred up in us sometimes. Leonard Ravenhill, that great revivalist preacher, he said, let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church and the place will still look smart and clean, but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room for the spiritual life. And if you, you know, simple quote, but I'm sure we, we all understand that principle very well there. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And look what it says, let those who love your salvation. Now, there's that little phrase I want to just look into for a minute here. Those who love your salvation. I would say that those three words, that is one of the simplest, most practical safeguards you could ever have 
against backsliding, against a wandering heart, against the assaults of this world, that we love his salvation. As is often said, as we walk through this valley of life, the unknown, if we are looking and seeking God, we will find the footsteps of Jesus both in front of us and also beside us. We love his salvation. Now, what does that actually mean? What is it that the thoughtful believer loves? We must, I'd say, not be tempted to think of this as just simply we get to heaven at at such a one-dimensional way of looking at salvation. Firstly, he loves best of all, and most highly, the Saviour himself. Often our Lord is called salvation. His name actually literally means salvation in Hebrew because he is the great worker of salvation. In Hebrews 12, 2, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the great Alpha and Omega of our faith. And in a world that seems to have so much uh, trouble all over the place right now, we see great men failing, we see corrupt systems, we see lack of justice, and all these things that we look around the world that grieve our hearts and our souls. We, as believing brothers and sisters, we can look to the person of Christ and we can always be amazed. And if we're not, we need to look for longer and we need to look harder. He never fails. His love is unconditional. His power is immeasurable. His nature is infinite. His glory unparalleled. His humility unrivaled. His wisdom unsurpassed. His goodness impeccable. And his reign is everlasting. Let those who seek you love your salvation. When we think of it like that, we ask ourselves the question, why do we actually spend so much time looking at other things? Why do we spend so much effort learning about other things when we have so much to learn about our Lord and Saviour? It doesn't matter how long we've been walking with him. There's always an infinite amount more we could learn. He is the one we must seek. And as we said, we need to look to him in these days for our strength, for our joy, and for our sustenance. But it's more than just the person. The phrase there says we must also love the plan of salvation. This speaks to us of what that person did, what Jesus Christ did for us. And if I had to sum up the gospel in one word, it's very hard to sum up the gospel in one word, but I would probably use the word substitution because I like the way that that uh, illustrates for us that someone took our place. We we put ourselves in that that, uh, equation for the gospel there. It says that God demonstrated his love for us on the cross, doesn't it? We know that the, the gospel is really the solution for fulfilling our purpose in this life. Quite simply, the gospel is everything. Jesus died in our place so that we could live forever with him. I'm going to read to you a lovely monologue about the gospel. This was discovered, it was written by John Calvin, but it was discovered not in his institutes, his most famous work. It was, it was hidden away in a preface to a French New Testament written in 1534. This is how, I'm going to, it's quite long, but just go with me. I think it's worth the, worth the read. He said this, without the gospel... Everything is useless and vain. And without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty, all wisdom folly before God, strength is weakness, and all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comfort, the doubting sure, and the slaves free. It is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. It follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. 
He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life so that by him, fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, debt cancelled, labour lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficult easy, disorder ordered, division united, rebellion subjected, ambush uncovered, force forced back, combat combated, vengeance avenged, dominion damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness and all misfortune. And then he ends simply by saying, this is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. I love that. I mean, hundreds of years ago, but that was still the focus of his heart there. And for me, that sums up very nicely what the psalmist means when he said, let those who seek you love your salvation, because that is obviously what the gospel is. It's our salvation. This is what we should seek. And for me, that sums up Psalm 70. So let's just move straight in to Psalm 71. Verse 1, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man, for you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. Now this is an individual lament psalm and most people assume that it actually expresses the faith of an older believer in the Lord, someone who has walked and trusted in God for many, many years, an old stalwart of the faith, we might say. And if you've ever met someone like this, it's all, you know, you're always so interested to hear what these people have to say. You think of the wisdom that can be gained from just a lifetime of walking with the Lord. I'm not talking about education. I'm talking about that, those, that wisdom in this sense. I'm talking about just what rubs off on a person, a person who has been molded for such a long period of time into the image of Christ. And although they may appear you know, just as a, a normal person today, they're different because they've had that long walking with the Lord. And, and those of us who, who have not been walking as long, we should always see that, respect that, and be able to listen to the lessons that we have from them. Yeah, it's a treasure, really, that these people have to pass on. Um, but of course, age comes with challenges. We see a few of them mentioned in this psalm here. Verse 9, he talks about losing his strength. In verse 10, obviously, the troubles, you know, just because you get old, it doesn't mean troubles don't continue to come this, your way from this earth. And then in verse 11, he also talks about there being no one with him to deliver him. And this got me thinking about the issue of loneliness. I've spoken to a number of people over this period. This is a theme that keeps coming up within the church and, and outside of the church. I think it's exasperated by, obviously, the situation we've all been in for the last year. 
I think 2020 particularly highlighted just how serious a thing loneliness is. Most of the mental health foundations that we have in the UK now are actually saying that loneliness is the public health challenge of our generation. And this is quite an unusual concept if you think about it, but it's very true. The actual statistics indicate that feeling lonely and every associated issue that comes from that is actually posing bigger risks for premature death than smoking and obesity ever did. Smoking and obesity are pretty serious killers, so that's a, quite a statement. I haven't actually, to be honest, read the studies that check that out, but that is on most of the mental health websites. Loneliness is said to really attack two different groups of people the most at any point. It can attack anyone, of course, but these are the most common two groups. Individuals aged over 70, and perhaps surprisingly, young people aged between 15 and 25. And there's different reasons associated with both of those groups that actually make for quite fascinating reading. This is a serious issue. We don't want to take it lightly. And I think one of the things that the church really needs to do uh, if we're looking at these statistics is rediscover the concept of community. We know the church is globally the bottle of Christ. We know we've got these local bodies set up as, as, as the local body of Christ. But quite often, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're operating as a community. That is a real challenge, I believe, for the local church. I think that will be a great witness in this day and this age that we have. 2020 has put a lot of people into a time of forced isolation. And I believe we may be seeing this. Again, speaking to a lot of Christians, I think not being able to do what we've always done in this country has awakened us to the fact of just how precious it was what we were able to do. And part of that is not necessarily the teaching and, and these sorts of things, because that has still been available. It's actually the intimate community fellowship aspect and all the body life that comes through that. That has been the thing that people are craving and are starved of and are missing. So at this time, I think that's one thing we can pray for, for our church, for all the little churches that are scattered around Hastings that are struggling with that. But this old saint here, it's a problem that he obviously knew about, but he recognizes God's faithfulness to him in his youth because some of these verses are just amazing. He speaks of a youth spent gaining confidence with God. And this is really in contrast to a youth that could be spent squandered, squandering his life. He used these early years to get to know the Lord. And he was with the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He recognized God's faithfulness in his life, in his maturing years, and in his old age. Actually, within this psalm, it says birth, youth, maturing, and old age. So this is the picture we're getting is that this man was someone who walked with God. He went through trials with God. He saw God's faithfulness meet him. And so this is a man, really, who had had a whole lifetime of divine instruction. Let's look at verse 12. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, hasten to help. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness and yours alone. O oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and you still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and grey, O oh God, you do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. So even though we see here that his adversaries are upon him, he is obviously in some sort of imminent uh, danger. We don't know the context, but he was still determined to praise 
God. He says, even though he is old and gray, he will tell the next generation or the generation of the mighty deeds of God. Now, there is a man who has his priorities in the right place. He knows that although the situation around him is pretty precarious, he has a duty to tell of the faithfulness of God. And this is not something he's read about. This is something he's experienced. And he's basically testifying of a lifetime of God's faithfulness. And it's a wonderful picture that we have here. What a witness that must have been to those around him. And just, I was thinking about this. If you've ever met someone like this in your life who's, who's inputted into you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there are many examples through church history. I, I was thinking back to 2003. I was a new, fairly new believer. And me and Sarah were in Israel together. And we were, it was the first time I'd been to Israel. I was a new Christian. But we were, the, the, the guide we were with was obviously very good friends with the, the Bible teacher Derek Prince. If any of you ever not heard of Derek Prince, he's a very big UK Bible teacher, massive international ministry. I did a lot of teaching on Israel, a few, few differences with various people on, on certain things, but he was a faithful you know, man who had walked his whole life with God and served with God. And we were in Israel in 2003, and he died in 2003. He was 88 years old. And the tour guide we were with was actually the person who nursed him in the last few years of his life when he was ill. And she invited him to come and address us that time. And obviously, I was too young to really, young in the Lord, to really appreciate what the significance of this. But I just remember this 88-year-old man. He couldn't stand. He came and he was placed at a desk, and he just hunched over, and he just spoke about God for about 30 minutes. And little did I know that was actually to be his last ever public speaking event. And he just spoke simply and purely about what God has done in his life, and it was an amazing time. I'd love to actually go back and listen to it now with years under my belt to really appreciate what he said, but all this time now I still remember that quite clearly. Another example from history, and this is a more popular one, I believe we've probably told this story in the church before, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. You know him? Faithful man. He was 86 at least. That may mean he was 86 when this happened, or it may mean he was into his 90s or a little bit older. We don't exactly know the date, but he was old at this time. He was the last surviving believer who personally knew one of the apostles. He was the Bishop of Smyrna, and at this time he was actually being hunted by, by the Roman government. They were trying to stamp out Christianity. He was taken by some people to an old farmhouse. Eventually, I'm cutting this very short, this story. The authorities discovered where he was hiding. Soldiers arrived to arrest him, and as is fitting for a man of his stature, he arose and he welcomed them as old friends. He served them food, he served them drink. He requested only an hour to pray before he would go with them willingly. They agreed, and the story goes that they overheard his godly prayers, and the soldiers wondered why so many of them had been sent to arrest this aged man who was clearly a, a holy man. They allowed him to pray for two hours, and then he was transferred into a magistrate's carriage the magistrate continued to persuade him to try and worship Caesar, which is what he was going to have to do. Unsuccessful, the magistrate became agitated and manhandled Polycarp out of the carriage, who fell at this time and cut himself quite badly. The bishop raised himself to his feet, hobbled into this great amphitheater, where he was met with, obviously, a, a, a roaring crowd of boos and rage against him, the Roman mob. The governor then asked him to deny Christ and the promises if he would, his life would be spared. People begged him to do that. But the faithful bishop answered with those now infamous words where he said, Four score and six years I have served him, and he has never done me injury. 
how then can I now blaspheme my king and my saviour? And I just hear that story every time and I love that. Most, that is all most people know of Polycarp. If you hear, that is the only story they've ever heard. Now, as a, we only have one extant writing from Polycarp left today. And interestingly enough, it is a letter he wrote to the Philippian church. And if we do it whenever the next time I finish my Philippian series, I will do a postscript because this letter to the Philippian church is quite amazing. Like, and it gives us deep insight to this man of faith, this old saint of God. And it also gives us a huge understanding of how the church at Philippi progressed from Paul's letter. So that, that's quite fascinating. We'll look at that. But he was another one of these old men, like the psalmist here at this time. Let's continue reading, verse 19. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. For you have done great things, O God. Who is like you? You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again, and you will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul, which you have redeemed. My tongue will also utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek my hurt. So he looked to the past to remind himself of God's faithfulness and power throughout his life. He looked to the future to remind himself that there's still work to be done. Until you're finally called home, your mission is the same. So now he turns to the present and he begins to do exactly what he has been talking about his whole life. He starts praising God. Verse 22 and 23, he praises him with his lips by singing or verbally praising God. Verse 22, he also plays instruments to praise God. Verse 24, telling others about the character of God. And also, earlier on in verse 17, we saw he tells people about the acts of God. And what a good witness this is of this man in the final years of his life, still passionate, fervent with just the desire to tell people about God's faithfulness and what he has done. And then he sings praises and he still plays instruments. I love that, to the Lord. What a picture we have of a faithful old saint in the Lord here. There's a man called Thomas Chisholm. I think that's how he pronounced it. He was uh, born in a log cabin in Kentucky, came to the Lord at age 27. He had up and down health, bouts of illness, bouts of employment. Uh, for all standards, no great, amazing things in his life. We would say a very ordinary life that many of us could relate to but one thing he knew that he had blessings every morning from God and he used to love the third chapter of Lamentations you remember that well probably the best verse in Lamentations actually where it says his compassions fail not they are new every morning great is your faithfulness and you can probably see where I'm going with this he was the man who then penned that most famous hymn great is your faithfulness in fact it actually started off as a poem that he wrote he then sent this poem to one of his friends who was associated with Moody Bible Institute at the time in the, in, the, in the choir there, and he was put to music, and it became the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And this hymn became a, a favourite hymn with the students and faculty at Moody, and it's become really the Institute's unofficial college hymn. It has been for many, many years. However, in the UK church, it was actually it didn't catch on over here when it was first written. It really only became popular in the UK since Mr. Graham came here in the 1950s on his crusades and he brought that hymn with him and 
it kind of caught on after that, and since then it's actually become one of England's most popular hymns. But this, again, was just a man who had a life of living the faithfulness, seeing the faithfulness of God, and he used his tongue, his mouth, his words, and his life to tell people of the faithfulness, and it went around the whole world. Let's just jump straight into 72. This is our final psalm in the Psalter. I'm going to just read the whole thing to you, and then I actually want to just pull out a few points from a slightly different perspective rather than going through it and looking at the psalmist piece by piece. This is actually only one of two psalms, I think, that we have attributed to King Solomon himself, and it's a psalm that really talks about the righteous reign of a king, obviously firstly and foremost through Solomon, but then, as is often the case with psalms, when you see something being written about a Davidic king or a, so- a Solomonic king in that, in that line, it's a teaching about the Messiah, and we're going to see that here. It says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the, and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like the showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in his sight so he may live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon and may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines and let men bless themselves by him. Let the nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You can see here we're coming to an end of a book here. So the psalmist prayed for the prosperity of the Lord's anointed. Ultimately, I believe this is pointing towards Israel's Messiah, the anointed one who was the true king. Now this is very similar. Do you remember when Solomon first came to the throne and we have that amazing prayer of his? When he asks the Lord, he doesn't ask for riches, he asks for wisdom. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, he wrote a hymn called Jesus Shall Reign. He wrote that hymn after meditating on this psalm. Let me just read you a couple of uh, verses. He said, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. And as he was meditating on this psalm, he read it through the eyes of the New Testament and he he interpreted the whole thing as pointing towards the reign of Messiah. And I don't have a... I quite like that interpretation. I think there's much we can glean from this. And what I want to do now is actually just pick out seven principles that we see here from the reign of a perfect king that will be present during the reign of the perfect king. 
in the future. So the first thing is righteousness and justice. You notice in verse 2, verse 1 and 2, may he judge your people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice. We know the very foundation of God's throne is described as being righteousness and justice. Therefore, that is automatically a link with God as king. In Isaiah, Isaiah is one of the most messianic books in the Old Testament. Pretty much every theme from this psalm comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 32 verse 1 says, Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Isaiah 9 verse 7, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When Jesus is ruling in the messianic kingdom, it will be a reign that is characterized by righteousness and justice. And then it says, peace. Let the mountains bring peace to the people. And whenever we hear the word peace and mountains, we often think of that again, that verse in Isaiah that talks about the man's feet being shod for the preparation of peace. There are many verses. Isaiah 32, it flows naturally from righteousness. Isaiah 32, verse 17. And the work of righteousness will be peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness. Speaks of our relationship with God in its fullest meaning. And the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. So it's a reign that's characterized by righteousness, a reign that's characterized by justice. And these two things together will bring peace, wholeness to the whole of humanity to the creation and to people at that time, I believe, too. Gentleness. If you look at Psalm 6, where you get that unusual poetic phrase, may he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like the showers of the water. When you trace that those expressions through the Bible, it's speaking of that beautiful picture you get. You just wake up and there's this soft dew all over the grass on the ground, rather. This is going to be indicative of how he rules. He will rule not on the basis of his power and putting people down. It will be on the basis of the foundation of his throne, righteousness, justice, truth, love, or basically in who he is. The fourth thing, prosperity. You see this all over this psalm. You look at verse 8, may he rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Verse 10, let the kings, and you get this picture, the kings of Tarshish and Sheba, they're all bringing gifts up to the king here. This means the earth is going to be in a prosperous state at this time. There's going to be no people, no children starving, no TV ads advertising that people are dying from lack of food. The king who rules righteously will sort all these things out. This will indicate an abundance of every supply, both for people in every city and country, for all purposes of state and kingdom. And what is the character and the length and the time of his reign? 72 verse 15, so he may live and the gold of Sheba, let them pray for him continually, let them bless him all day long. Well, look at 17 too, there's a lot of things, may his name endure forever, may his name increase as long as the sun shines. These sorts of statements are really speaking that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's an everlasting reign. His kingship as well as his priesthood is in really the power of an endless life. This is what we get from that passage in Isaiah again where it talks about, you know, he's the everlasting one, the mighty God, the prince of peace. All of these things are connected to that. And it also says to the, to the end of his government, there will be no end. This is once he has taken the throne, he has taken the throne. What is the, the reign of his? What is, how far does his territory ex, expand? And we see this again in verse 8. May he rule from sea to sea. This is just an idiom here. From the river to the ends of the earth. This is talking about 
he will reign over the whole earth. And what a heaven this earth will be when this curse is removed, when he comes, all wickedness and evil taken out of the hearts and lives of all people. It will be a, a reign that's characterized by that behavior. Prayer and blessing is the final thing I've got on there. And you can see this again in verse 15 and various places. It talks about let them pray to him continually. Let them bless him all the day long. And this evokes for me the images that we get in Isaiah chapter 2, where it speaks of just the nation streaming up to Jerusalem to see the one who is seated on the throne there, to hear instruction from him, to hear wisdom from him, presumably to be praising in his presence, to be singing and clapping and dancing and rejoicing in the presence of this great king. This is the reign of the king. And then let's just deal with the end of this psalm, because I love the last two verses. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let it be and let it. That is not amen and a woman, if anyone's interested in that. Okay, that is amen and amen. You either get that or you don't. Look it up. I think he's really drawing again here from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Remember that famous vision where Isaiah gets his commission in the presence of the Lord and he sees the angels, the, the four cherubim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that statement finds its ultimate fulfillment and consummation in the time when the king comes back and he, he's sitting on the throne. And that is what is characterizing his reign. Righteousness, justice, peace, shalom, gentleness, uh, a reign that is everlasting, that spreads across the whole globe and is characterized by prayer and blessing from his people, from his saints. And when I look around the world today, as we've said, it can be depressing. We need to keep our eyes on this fact. This is the one who we worship. That is the future that awaits us. And for me, that just stirs my heart to praise him myself. This is what the reign of that king shall be like. And when we think on that, our hearts should really just say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you just so much for every single truth that you reveal to us in your scriptures. I pray now that as we head back out for the rest of this week as to our own homes in this lockdown situation that we have, these truths would just burn in our heart, Lord God. That we, above all people, Lord, would be joyful at this time. That we would witness and tell others like that great saint of old, Lord, who just had the works that you'd done, the faithfulness on his lips, and he was telling the next generation about it. Lord, would we aspire to that, Lord? Would you empower us to do that, Father? In Jesus' name, for his sake, we pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening. Amen.